Welcome to Artistic Beginnings. I'm Mitch. And I'm Melody. We're siblings who grew up working in the entertainment industry and were deeply impacted by the arts. I'm a professional actor, singer, and dancer working in Los Angeles and New York, still pursuing an artistic career. I, on the other hand, am no longer pursuing that career. I went on to become a researcher, though I'm still involved in the creative industry. Artistic Beginnings is all about the winding artistic paths that creatives follow in their lives. We share these inspirational stories with you so that you can learn and grow as a creative. So, let's get into it. My name is Angela Sauer. I have been acting as long as I can remember. I do a little stand-up comedy and have a, I have a bit that I'm working on that I haven't figured out yet, but I was born facing the ceiling, which is really unusual. It's called precipital occiput posterior, something like that, P.O.P. And usually babies are facing the floor head first, born facing the ceiling head first. And my dad always said like, see, it's, it's nice because Angela was kind of born dancing to the beat of her own drum. And I always thought it made me seem like really optimistic. And my mother, my mother was once telling this story to someone that she knew and she said, we should have known Angela was going to do things the hard way. <laughs> but I like to think, no, mom should have known from the beginning I was going to be a performer because from the moment I was born, I was trying to find my light. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to Artistic Beginnings. I hope you had a good week. My week has been great. I've been finding my light quite well. Have you? <laughs> Reference to what she I, just said. I under, yep, I got it. Yeah, I got Melody it, got it. Good job. Yeah, thanks. Transitions. <laughs> we got them. Oh my goodness. This week on our podcast, we have Angela Sauer. I've known Angela for a while. And actually, Mitch met her when we went to go visit her. She was working at 2-Bit Circus, which was a virtual reality arcade in Great Los time. Angeles. It was so fun. They have all of the carnival games of virtual reality. And Angela not only was just general staff there sometimes, but she also ran the trivia nights and karaoke, which is why we went. And her outfit was freaking amazing. She She really rocked it up there i'll have to find it on her instagram but it's this dress made out of roses it's incredible either way if she's still there and uh two-bit circus opens up to the public again highly recommend going to check that out she's a lot of fun high energy the games are great mm -hmm. at uh, two-bit circus highly recommend that kind of stuff i actually know some of the designers of the games over there and oh, they, they've wild. got some really awesome games nice. yep. and also another place that i I'm pretty sure she still works there. She's a tour guide at Universal Studios. And honestly, I cannot think of someone better to be a tour guide there <laughs> because they are so high energy and so fun. And that's literally Angela. So whenever that opens up and you feel safe enough to go and slash it is safe enough to go, go hang out with her on a tour and learn about Universal Studios backlot. It's pretty great. Yeah. Without further ado, then let's go ahead and jump into the backstory of Angela Sauer. So I guess it was obvious from very early on in my childhood that I was a performer type. People were always telling my parents when I was pretty little, like, you have to get her in commercials. She would be so great. And for whatever reason, I shied away from that. But they did put me in what was called the Little People's mm. Theater. And it was for children. And I, from the ages of like three and four, I was doing little plays. I just always really liked performing. And my best friend was a very heavy musical theater performer from childhood. She was in the chorus of a regional tour of Joseph and the Amazing Technical Color Dreamcoat. Mm -hmm. You know, like they used to travel around the country and get local children's choirs. Mm -hmm. So she was really into musical theater, which made me audition for the musicals. Not because that was my thing, but because that was a social thing to do. Some yeah. kids are on the soccer team. I joined musicals. And it wasn't really until I was in... I think high school that I realized how much I loved acting in plays. It started becoming a thing that I was passionate about and looked forward to 
and started feeling like I was good at. When I was going into college, I didn't think I was going to be a theater major, but I definitely eliminated potential options that wouldn't allow a non-major in the department when I was looking at colleges, because I think there was some part of me that knew that that was important to me. I just didn't want that struggling artist life. It sounded so terrible. By the end of my freshman year of college, I was a theater minor. By the end of my sophomore year of college, I was a double major with theater and something else. And by my junior year, I was like, no, I'm, I'm all theater. This makes sense for me. This is what I want. I feel like it's why I was put on this earth. And I love every part of theater. And when I was in college, I took every theater class. I took a stage management course. I took fabric manipulation. I took scenic painting. I did all of the things because I realized at some point in my career that I wanted to be doing whatever I could be doing to make whatever production I was a part of better, no matter what that meant. And I was in my junior year of college. I went to the American College Theater Festival and was competing there both as an individual performer and also a scene from a play that I was in went to competition. While I was there, I went and met a man named John Plumpus, who at the time had just come off of playing, I believe, Zazu in the Broadway production of The Lion King. I'm not positive that that was his role. If John ever listens to this, I'm sorry, John, if I'm wrong. But he, he was one of the participants in the conference. I went and heard him speak. And he told a story that really affected me and changed how I thought about what I was doing. Because at the time I was a theater major, but I think for me, theater could still mean so many things. And he talked about how in The Lion King, the musical, there's a moment where Simba and Mufasa, the father and son lion, are talking. And Simba's like, you love me, right, dad? And we're best pals, right? And he says, yes, son. And he says, and we're going to be together forever, right? And Mufasa says, yes, but not in the way that you think. Do you see all the stars in the sky? That's my love for you. And when I'm not here anymore, I'll still be in those stars looking down on you. And John said that for him, that was the most powerful moment of the show. And that there was always someone in the audience that was really affected by it. He hadn't done a lot of musical theater before that. He had mostly done plays. And he thought, yeah, but this Disney show, if one kid comes and sees this show and thinks, I'm going to be okay, and maybe they've lost someone and they're going to know that that person's looking down on them. Maybe they're going to know that someday somebody in their family will die, but they can still have that connection. Maybe they will know that love is beyond just our physical presence and people will still love you from a distance. And he said, if that message gets through to one kid and changes that one kid's life, we've changed the world. And that really spoke to me. And so then between my junior and senior year, I was in a production of Anne of Green Gables. It was turned into a play. I played Diana Barry at a community theater in Lansing. I will say though, I was way too big for my britches going into the show. I was doing a really good job hiding it, but I had just spent three years in college like studying the craft of theater. And I'm in this production and it's not great. It's not the greatest script. It's not the production quality that I'm used to. And I'm working with a lot of people that this is a hobby for them. They don't have a lot of education or training in theater. And I was doing my best to be diplomatic and to not be a diva. It was like sizzling up inside of me. There were a lot of moments of, oh my God, why did you move my prop? You know? <laughs> and then one day they said that there was a Girl Scout troop that wanted to do a badge event at the theater. And so they invited the Girl Scouts in and they asked me if I would 
kind of host most of the event. So before the show, I would meet all the Girl Scouts, talk to them about what the play was and what it is to see live theater and how you're expected to react in the audience. And then I put on my costume. They watched me putting on my makeup. They asked a lot of questions. And then after the show, I did a one-on-one, well, not one-on-one, one-on-group talk mm-hmm. back with them. And these kids were so smart. It blew my mind. They were asking questions that were more intelligent than things that the adults that were in the production with me were asking. They understood things on a level that I didn't expect them to. A lot of them were like eight, nine years old. And there was this one very inquisitive little girl that after the show lit up and she had red curly hair. And in case anyone listening doesn't know Anne of Green Gables, the main character is a redhead. And I thought, oh my God, what if this kid feels self-conscious about her red hair most of the time? And she just got to see this beautiful heroine being loved and smart and feisty and fierce. What if this helped her with her sense of self-acceptance? What if some kid comes and sees the show and realizes it's okay for girls to be smarter than boys? Mm-hmm. It's okay to be friends with people that are your grandparents' age and to relate to people that are beyond those that are in your own grade level. What if they learn that it's okay to be an individual and to be a risk taker and to jump off a roof? Maybe don't do that. What if they get something really positive out of this silly little show at this tiny little theater in Lansing that I was not proud of? And I realized that it was just like what John said. If we can affect one person in that audience, we can make a difference in their life. And then they can go on to have different impact in their own lives because of what we're doing with our art. And that was the moment that I was like, you know what? I'm going to learn everything about theater because if I can help paint a set and make that set a little bit better so we can tell this story a little bit better, I'm going to do it. If I can know a little bit more about lighting design or about choreography or about stage combat, if I can give a better performance, if I can help this process in any way, I'm going to do it because it really hit me that what I was doing was important for people beyond myself. I think until that point in my life, me performing was more about wanting external validation, wanting other people to tell me that I was funny, to tell me that I was talented, to tell me that I was smart and entertaining and engaging. And at that moment, I realized it's not about me. I'm doing this for a bigger reason. And everything changed for me at that moment. And I think that's really when I actually started thinking about being a professional actor. And I think honestly that that's why I keep doing it. I think that most of the people that I know that kind of came up with me that started as actors, including people that I know through graduate school that have master's degrees in it, I think that there's a really big divide when it comes to longevity. There are people that approach this art from a, a place of, I want to be successful. I want to be famous. I want to be the star of a TV show. I want to have an Oscar. And I think that it is really hard to sustain yourself through difficult times as an entertainer when you are focused on yourself. Because I think that it is so hard to reach those bars, to feel like you are stepping up steps of a ladder that doesn't exist. And I think that the way to continue is to recognize that all of the things that you're doing 
before you hit those personal goals really matter. All of the art that you're creating on the way is affecting other people. It's affecting your audiences. I think to some extent, even you're affecting the people that you're working with. Because I think you learn from each other. I think you learn how to be better artists and better people, really. Something else that John Plumpus said in that meeting, he said, all of the skills that it takes to make you a great actor are the same skills that it takes to make you a great person. Because you need to be a really good listener. You need to know how to respond to people in the way that they are coming towards you and not in the way that you want them to be coming towards you. Because if if you're in two different scenes, that doesn't serve the play. It teaches you to be open and vulnerable. It teaches you to be brave and to take risks. And I think all of those things are what make it better for you to interact with the rest of humanity. You have to have so much empathy as an artist. And I think that sometimes I'm too vulnerable and that sometimes that hurts me. But for the most part, that's such a gift. I couldn't agree with that more. The concept of having that impact on the audience being a core driver for what drew you to maintaining your desire to to stay in the industry is very interesting. Do you think it's possible for that feeling to be displayed more in terms of converting people that are, are pursuing this specifically just to get famous? I do tend to have a lot of conversations with people that are interested in becoming professional performers, in which I kind of bring this up. I, for a while, had a blog when I was in grad school. I wrote every single day for three years about what I was learning in, in my classes. I was a prolific writer. And as a result, I started writing for Backstage for a long time about my artistic journey and career. And people reached out to me on a pretty regular basis asking for advice. And people still do. It surprises me. Even like a year ago, somebody recognized me at an audition. Hmm. And I haven't written for Backstage for six years. I know. But I guess people really connected to what I was saying, which is awesome. Over the years, I've tried to be as available as possible to artists that are earlier in their careers than I am. Because when I was where they are now, I didn't have a resource like me. When I was applying for grad school, I didn't know anyone that had been to grad school for acting. I didn't know what to ask. I didn't know what to look for. I had no resources. I didn't know what the callback process was like. When I was moving out to LA, I didn't know anyone that was here and doing it. And so I like to be able to answer those questions for people. And I try to make myself as accessible as possible. And I regularly have people that approach me, particularly young people, a lot of teenagers, who will ask, well, I want to be on the next Disney show or the next Nickelodeon show. And they are very convinced that they are the most talented person in the world and are going to succeed. Mm -hmm. And I never want to discourage anyone from that because... I don't know. Maybe you are, you know, maybe you're the next Ariana Grande. I have no idea. And that's not my place. But I do have to tell them, well, let me tell you about where I've been, which is I've now been acting since I was three. I'm now 35. That's 32 years. I have a bachelor's degree in acting and a master's degree in acting. I'm very well trained. And I am still in a place where I get very, very excited to get an audition for one word on a TV show after all of these years. That's still a very big deal for me. And I think there are a lot of people in my life that don't fully understand that. Like my father was out visiting me in January because I was in an industry showcase that was produced by NBC. And the day after the showcase, I got three pretty major auditions. Major in my mind. 
they were all for network TV shows. And the first one came in, it was to say one line on the TV show Superstore. And my dad said, one line, that's it. And I was like, dad, we are going to be very excited if I book this one line. We're going to be really excited. Can you not downplay that this is an accomplishment? And I said, also, remember, they're bringing in 20 other women to read this one line. That's a one in 21 chance that I'm even going to get it. So let's not be disappointed by what the audition is. I think that there are a lot of people out there that don't recognize how many actors are in a TV show that are not the lead on the TV show and how difficult it is to even get those roles. It's not that I want to discourage anyone from being an actor. Of course I don't. I think it is a wonderful calling and I'm blessed to have it. But I also want to be very honest with people that if you are trying to be an actor because you want to be the lead on a TV show, the odds of that happening are not super high. So you have to decide whether you want to be an actor that's not the lead on the TV show, whether you want to be an actor that's never going to get nominated for an Oscar. Not that you won't deserve one, not that you're not talented enough to get one. Just recognize that there is no way that you will ever have control over that. What you have control over is doing the work when you get the work, regardless of what that work is. And I've been very lucky in my career. I work a lot. I've done seven equity theater contracts in the last two years in Los Angeles as a woman. That's incredible. I just did my first recurring role on a TV show. I was on an episode of Jane the Virgin last year, an episode of Get Shorty last year. I regularly have friends that will write me that haven't seen me since high school that are like, I was watching TV and you were on it, which is so sweet that they're excited for me. But that's with a lot of blessings and a lot of luck. That's how far I've gotten 33 years or 32 years. So it's, I think, important for people to recognize that they have to be propelled by something other than fame and definitely by something other than money because the money is not a part of it. And I really like the way that you've put it and the way that you've positioned your driving motivator. It doesn't necessarily mean that it needs to be specifically like a performance role in a TV show or in a theater show that's equity or or any of that kind of thing. The mission is kind of agnostic of any specific medium. I know that you do a lot of other things outside of performing. Do you choose to do those things based on this same kind of moral and kind of guiding principle that you've selected? Or is it a variety of different decisions? Maybe in part. I do really, really love performing. I feel very strongly that that's what I'm here to do. And so even in my hobbies, I tend to be drawn to things that are performance-based, that are performative. I do some magic. I do some stand-up comedy. I'm a drag performer. I do competitive karaoke, competitive lip sync. And I'm also, I do a lot of modeling. And I think all of those are tangentially related, at least, to my background in acting. Being a a magician has a lot to do with being an actor, right? Because if you are doing the trick right, but you can't get people to pay attention to you because you lack the ability to be dynamic, then people are going to catch what the trick is. You're not going to be able to deceive them. And so much of that is in your personality and in your storytelling and in your jokes. And I think stand-up is a similar thing. You have to figure out not only how to write the joke, but how to present it in a way that is something that's engaging, something that is truthful. It is really hard to be truthful on stage. And so I, you know, I think I do these other hobbies both because they fall in line with a skill set that I've already acquired and also because I think they are helping me to further develop that primary skill set. I love that. So 
going back to one of the things that you said earlier when you were talking about kind of your origin story, I wanted to get a little bit more context for what the driving force may have been for you leading up to your mindset change. And if you could give just a little bit of context for like how that transition kind of occurred. I'm trying to understand like if that hadn't happened, what potentially could have. And because I think a lot of people are kind of struggling with that position. I think that there were so many more opportunities for me to be devastated. When I was a senior in college, after I'd had this mindset change, I auditioned for a play that had a cast of seven women. I was a senior. I didn't get cast in it. And I was pretty surprised by that. I had kind of expected that I would end up playing one of the roles. But because I'd already had this sort of revelation about who I was and what I wanted, I ended up doing the sound design for that show and the dramaturgy and thought, you know, I might not be on stage, but I'm still going to help make this a great show. And then when I applied to grad school, my senior year of college, that was the first time I applied. And I went to a few different schools. I got callbacks from five schools and two of them really looked like they were going to make me an offer. Two of them invited me to campus. One of the two could not have been more complimentary about me. They had everyone else that came to the school for like their second callback do more material. And they didn't have me do any more material. They said, we already know that we love you. We're just trying to figure out if we can fit you into this class. And then the other school had a student call me to try and help me figure out where in town I would want to live. Things that you would only need to do if this was a very real possibility. And then one of the schools is taking two women and I was girl number three, girls one and two accepted. So I was the first waitlisted person. The other school was taking five women and I was girl number six. So I ended up not getting into either school. And then I thought, that's okay. You know, I knew that I was going to be making theater whether I went to grad school or not. I wanted to go to grad school because I felt that I needed more training. Where I went to undergrad was a wonderful program, but I chose that college not thinking I wanted to be a professional actor. So if I had known I wanted to be a professional actor, I'm not sure that that's the school I would have gravitated towards. And I moved to Chicago and I kept auditioning for things. And the first like, I don't know, 10 or 11 shows I auditioned for, I kept getting called back. I got called back an uncanny number of times and I didn't get cast in any of them. And I remember thinking, I think I'm on the right track. I think the fact that people keep calling me back means I'm good. I'm good outside of a peer group audition setting like I've always been in in high school and college. I'm good in a real world, big city context. I'm just not quite good enough. And I think that made me decide really truly that I wanted more training. And so two years into being in Chicago, I applied for grad schools again. I got called back by another five or six schools. And one of them, it was the only school that called me back both times. And they were allowed to start making offers at 8 a.m. on this random Tuesday. And I got a call at 8.05 from this particular school. And so I knew like, oh, wow, they, they really want me. But I wasn't sold. So I decided to fly myself down to Florida to visit the Florida State University Oslo Conservatory for Actor Training. I visited for a few days and I was like, yep, this is it. This is the one. And I stopped considering the other schools. I wrote the other ones and was like, I'm sorry, I've made another choice. And I have no regrets. It was an awesome program. But I think I could have gotten really discouraged the first time I didn't get into grad school. I think that that could have been the moment that I decided not to keep going. And now that I've invested so heavily in myself, especially as an actor, I fully intend to be acting when I am 90 years old. There is no part of me that thinks that that's not going to happen. When I am 90 years old, I will be acting on TV, in movies, in student films. 
theater. I don't care. I will be acting. So that means I'm 35 years in and I have another 55 years to go. So like, if it's not happening for me in my career right now, that's okay. I got a lot of time. Yeah. I'm not even halfway there yet. And there are so many actors that have major progression later in life, right? Yeah. I think that mindset, a lot of people have an issue with that, that if you don't make it immediately, that it's never going to happen, which is not accurate for this business because it's so random. Like you said, you control what you can and then let everything else go. I think it's important to recognize that we're all going to go through struggles, even after the point where you're doing really well. There's no guarantee that you're going to continue doing really well. There are so many actors that, you know, you randomly see around LA and you think, why does that person look familiar? And then like 20 minutes later, you're like, oh, she was on that TV show. I wonder what she's doing now. You know, it's not like you hit this level and then you just stay there. Sometimes you do. Sometimes you progress further. Sometimes you don't. And that doesn't have anything to do with your value as an artist, your worth to society. It only has to do with things that are completely outside of your control, which is really, really frustrating. So we have some final questions that we ask all of our guests that we'd like to capture your responses to. Yes. Okay. All right. So jumping in, what is the hardest thing about pursuing the arts? Finding a way to be financially stable enough to do it while also having a flexible enough schedule to accommodate it. It is really, really difficult to find a job that does both. And if you find that job, you never let it go. But I have met so many people in my life that have made the nine to five decision where they're in a job that is less flexible so that they can have the money that they need to be doing things like taking classes. But then once you're in that nine to five job, it's really hard to walk away from it into a life of less certainty. And so I have seen a lot of very talented actors who are not setting themselves up for success in their acting careers because they're focused on financial stability. And on the other side, I also know a lot of actors that have very flexible schedules and are doing things like brand ambassador and MLMs, sometimes being waiters, working at Starbucks so that they have the flexibility when they need, but they are really struggling with money. So I usually have multiple day jobs, multiple sources of income, and I look for seasonal work and I look for part-time work. I often am looking for things where I can swap shifts with people. And I used to have a very nice cushy job. I used to work for the American Medical Association in Chicago. And part of the reason I went to grad school is because people there kept telling me when I told them I was an actor, they'd say, oh, I used to be an actor or I used to be a director. And I'd be like, what do you mean used to be? Because I was like, you know, 23 at the time. And they'd say things like, well, here I've got a 401k. I've got the kinds of health benefits people had in the 1960s. I have a family. It doesn't make sense for me to be an actor anymore. And I just thought, nope, that can't be me. That can't be my story. I knew that that was not going to be my journey to happiness. Believe me, I have no judgment against anybody that leaves acting behind. It is a very difficult choice to make to be an actor or any kind of artist, performer, especially. I support every decision. I support people staying in it when it doesn't make sense. I support people getting out of it when it feels like that's the best choice for them to make. I support all of it. 
But I would say that the that is the most difficult thing about being an actor is trying to figure out how you are going to sustain yourself financially and as an artist simultaneously. It is really hard. Yeah. Yeah. That's definitely true. So another question. What keeps you up at night? Man, I've been an insomniac since I was a child. So I don't know that anything specifically keeps me up at night. My ADHD keeps me up at night. Honestly, usually nothing career related. And honestly, most of the time, nothing financially related. The things that keep me up at night usually have more to do with pain that I can't let go of. You know, I'll get into an argument about something with somebody and I will think about it for weeks. That's the kind of thing that keeps me up at night more than anything else. So our final question, to a person that might be interested in pursuing the arts while still working a nine to five, what advice would you give them? I think the first advice that I would give is to figure out why you want to do both and in what capacity you want to be in the arts. I think it's very, very difficult to be a professional actor and work a nine to five if it's not a flexible nine to five. I had a flexible nine to five at one point. I was in a management capacity at H&R Block. And if I needed to leave to go do an audition, I was the boss and it was fine. I could do what I needed to do for the most part. But I think it's, it's really difficult to have two careers. You have to figure out which thing you want to be your career. And if your nine to five is your career and acting is your hobby, that is totally fine. And that is a very sustainable thing to do in LA, but I would say anywhere. It might not be professional work that you're doing as an actor, but that doesn't mean it's any less valid. Look at my Anna Green Gables thing. Like it, it can make a big difference. I think it's important. And I think theater is for everyone. And I think theater needs to be everywhere. And I would say the same thing about film. And, you know, we've got web series now. There are students everywhere making films in colleges across the country. They all need actors. There are so many ways to act that do not require acting to be your profession. So I think the first thing I would say is decide if you want acting to be your profession, if you feel that it is your vocation, the thing that God is calling you to do. Because if it is, then I would say you might want to reconsider the nine to five to give yourself the best chance at success. That said, if you feel nine to five is an important thing for your financial stability while trying to pursue that career as an actor, and it's a temporary situation, because look, if you end up being on a TV show, you're not also going to be working at H&R Block, you're going to be on the TV show. So at some point, you would give up your day job anyway. This is what you seriously want your career to be. And so know that at some point, you would have to make that choice. But while working the nine to five, I would say the best things that you could do are one, semi-professional or non-professional theater, because a lot of times they rehearse at night. So after a nine to five would be over and they rehearse on weekends and they're usually performing nights and weekends. So that's a great way to be kind of have a foot in both worlds. And the other thing that I would say is the thing that I hate when other people say to me, which is create your own work. If you are writing something that you can star in, that you can film on your own time, if it's a web series or it's a short film or it's a feature film or it's a pilot, if you want to be able to be doing acting while having that nine to five, you have to figure out how to make that happen for yourself. And it is a very challenging thing for me to hear that because I am not the most confident writer, but I'm a very confident actor. And about a year ago, I'm in an accountability group that meets weekly. We have a teleconference every Monday. And I broke down to them last January and I was like, I don't know what to do. Everyone keeps saying to make my own work and I don't think I can do this. And I'm not a very, like, I'm an okay writer. I never know how to end things. Like, all my characters sound the same. 
And my accountability said, whoa, 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 whoa. Who said you have to write it? And I was like, what? People said, make your own work. And she's like, right. But there are a lot of writers out there that are also trying to make their own work. You know writers. You can work with them. You don't have to put all that pressure on yourself. You are probably going to handle the producing, but you don't have to direct it. There are directors that are looking for projects to direct. There are writers that are looking for projects to write. There are other actors that are also looking for things to act in. You can outsource a lot of this. You don't have to own all of that. So I would say even if creating your own work means teaming up with other people and linking arms and trying to move forward with something together, I think that could be a really good way to make things happen for yourself on your own time without sacrificing the financial security of a nine to five. But you also have to be realistic about that, which is for every, you know, Issa Rae or Broad City, there are many, many things on YouTube that get 50 views ever. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I love that advice. I like the collaboration. Now, I got that a year ago. Have I made a short film yet? No. But what I did do is I wrote on Facebook and I wrote random Facebook posts last, I don't know, February. And I said, who who's a writer that has already written something that you think I'd be good for? And a bunch of writers sent me things. And one of them sent me a script that she thinks I'd be good for. I think I'd be good for. It's two actors. It takes place in one location on one day. They have one set of clothes. So it's, it's a pretty low scale thing. And I just found another actor to work with. I just found somebody that wants to direct it, who has a DP, who owns all of his own equipment, and the wheels started turning. Things started moving. We're now having to wait until, you know, this self-isolation quarantine stuff ends. Right. But now what I have done is I've spent the last year putting money into a special budget to make a short film with. I've had a year saving, you know, about a hundred bucks a month so that I can make this project when I'm ready. And hopefully whatever money I've saved is more than enough. Who knows? I want to do it on as low of a budget as possible. And honestly, I have no experience with this kind of thing. So I don't know what that means budget wise. But I found a lot of people that wanted to link arms. I found a lot of people that just wanted to get something made and that wanted to work together and that aren't in it for the money or the fame. They're in it because they want to make art. And it's very empowering to think, oh, I didn't have the capability to do this on my own. But because I've been in LA for seven years and have a network of people that know me and love me and respect and appreciate me and want to work with me. This is something that I can make happen now. I can make it happen because of the network I've built along the way. Hey guys, thanks for listening. You can find out more about our guest on her Instagram at Angela Sauer. Angela's information and more details about the interview can be found on our website at www.artisticpodcast.com. If you liked the conversation, do us a favor and share it with a friend. It's the best way to help people find our podcast and will help support the show. For updates on new episodes and content, you can follow us at The Artistic Pod on Instagram and Facebook. Thanks again for listening and we'll catch you next week.